My name is John Sylvester. I'm Australia's longest serving crime reporter and write a weekly column for The Age. Many of my colleagues have wondered why I've never bothered to move to other areas of the paper. The reason's pretty simple. I've got the best job in journalism, playing cops and robbers and getting paid for it. Over more than 40 years, I've covered some of Australia's biggest crimes and met fascinating characters on both sides of the law. In this series, you'll hear from them, the cops and the crooks, telling their stories. Welcome to my world. Welcome to Naked City. An elderly woman killed in her home in Box Hill North died from several blows to the head. Phyllis Hocking was the sort of elderly, generous woman who shouldn't have had an enemy in the world. As Tom Warden reports, Phyllis Fielding Hocking was to have celebrated her 80th birthday on Monday. Yet in October 1993, someone ambushed her, then beat her to death inside her son's Box Hill home. Her son, 46-year-old Philip Hocking, found his mother's body in a front bedroom. There was only one person who stood to gain from Phyllis's death, and that was the son, Philip, the sole beneficiary of the will. I would expect to be the prime suspect. Did you kill your mother? No, of course I didn't. And he had a deadly love of money. And indications of a burglary when he arrived home about 4pm. At first glance, it looked like a burglary gone wrong. Detectives but experienced police know that the first glance can often be wrong. Police are appalled at the viciousness of the attack. They say Mrs Hocking was fragile and defenceless. Charlie Bassina was the homicide detective in charge of the investigation. If it is uh, burglary based, we were looking at that aspect at this stage. We're keeping fairly open mind, but we'll follow that track initially and then we'll see. He always doubted burglary was the motive but it would take years for him to discover the real truth. And the crime scene tells you stories. You've got to read the crime scene. This was a overkill. When I say overkill, her head was significantly um, attacked with a heavy blunt object from the rear. And she was dead before she hit the ground. We're heading to his home in Melbourne's West. I've known Charlie for more than 30 years. How are you boys? Charlie, how are you? And I always found him not only to be a dedicated copper, but possibly Victoria's best-dressed detective. Phyllis Hocking, um, was that your job originally? Yeah, absolutely. So you were on, you were on call? Yeah, yeah, got on call and got called out to a uh, elderly woman who'd been uh, significantly battered to death with a blunt instrument. She'd been found in, uh, in her room. It made to appear that a burglary was taking place. She arrives home from the elderly citizen's uh, place in the morning. Uh, she lets herself in. Um, the offender lay in wait, and as she walked into the door, not two or three steps into her room, which was a converted lounge room, she was struck to the back of the head and basically died instantly. And that's not what a burglar would do, because the burglar could have... As a street cop, Charlie had been to many burglary scenes, and this one just didn't look quite right. This particular one, I walked in, the electrical equipment, like the video recorder and amplifier, were actually wired into the wall and whoever had taken the uh, equipment out actually cut the cord at the back and of course rendered them useless and no one's going to buy them. If you want to become a specialist investigator, go out and be a general detective. You do your burglaries, your rapes, your assaults, your arsons, your frauds because more often than not those initial crimes may be involved in the homicides. And that's Charlie found that Phyllis had been burgled twice 
and firebombing. She had a unit and uh, she'd been actually broken into twice. It was trashed one particular time, I think. Uh, maybe an arson attempt after that, like a Molotov cocktail. Yeah, was she was either unfortunate yeah. or the target um, of a terror campaign. Yeah. Um, and I thought, geez, this has got to be the most unluckiest woman. And you he immediately started looking for other motives. Uh, well, one of the questions you ask yourself is, why would someone want to kill this particular person? Well, are we looking for someone who's just got a vendetta against old women? Are we looking for some sadistic person who's got a fetish with old women? Is this something that's family-orientated? And we started focusing quite quickly on the son, Philip Hocking. And um, we started looking at him and looking at his alibi. He didn't work very far away. He worked in a, a studio on his own with one secretary. Of course, we get the secretary who says, well, I can't give him an alibi, but if he says he was here, he was here. So it's very, very loose. Um, and then there was a grandson that at that stage was a carpet cleaner and he was uh, heavily alibied by his de facto at that particular time. So at that particular stage, um, we'd exhausted all avenues of inquiry, uh, we put out a reward, nothing was forthcoming and I'd uh, at that stage uh, left the homicide squad and got promoted. To the case stalled and Charlie moved to general duties on promotion, although his heart was always at the homicide squad. In 1998, he moved back to the squad, and within weeks, he received a phone call. Leading a team, and not long as after I arrived at Homicide, I received a phone call or a message, actually from Brent Hawkins, de facto, at that stage, ex de facto. Uh, I've spoken to her, and she said, "Well, look, basically, she uh, said that alibi I gave uh, my de facto Brent Hawking is a whole lot of rubbish. Uh, Brent is the one who killed his grandmother for money." And, of course, we then got her in. We got a statement from her and we got a call. A guy here uh, wants to speak to you about his grandmother's murder. We went in there. So he took the first step knowing he was pretty much gone and made in full admissions as to how he killed her, why he killed her. But in, in And that's when Charlie video recorded the formal interview with Phyllis's grandson, Brent. This is a videotape recorded interview conducted at the uh, Homicide Squad office on Sunday, 21st of February, 1999. Capital Jarrah, do you agree with me? The time now is 8.37 p.m. by my watch. Is it uh, true to say that uh, your previous name was Brent Andrew Hocking? Okay, I intend to interview you in relation to the offence of murder of Phyllis Hocking. Mm -hmm. Before continuing, I must inform you that you're not obliged to say or do anything but anything you say or do may be given in evidence. Do you understand that? Yes. He freely waived his right to remain silent and calmly explained how he attacked his grandmother. All right, so just take me through the 26th of October 1993. So she's at home. Who was it? Phyllis and whoever drives her. Okay. Hmm. Okay, so you're hiding there, the beam's going off. What's happened? Okay, she's come to the door and fiddled. I just seem to remember a man's voice. It was probably the driver. Uh -huh. She said goodbye and someone came inside and locked the door and uh, she went to go into her room and... How did you know that? I just peeped out and was watching. Yep. And I walked up behind her and I struck her here with the side of the bar. Yep. The tire lever. I did it very quickly a few times. I heard a shriek and she collapsed and I left. Do you recall whether at any stage she put up her hands to defend herself or cover her head in any way? In the first blow, I think. 
At any stage, did you um, put a watch on Phyllis's forearm? No. <laughs> Do you recall whether she was wearing a watch at the time? I can't remember. Okay. The Hocking case was about to be cracked wide open. There's a Seiko gold watch. And as the movies, you'd say, aha, that's the time of death because the clock has stopped at 10 to 2. Um, and then so I got very curious about that. I wanted to know, did that watch smash that the crime scene? So I directed my crime scene investigators to make sure they vacuumed up. Did I find any glass of the watch face? Thereafter, I then took that watch to Seiko to get it examined. And lo and behold, the uh, jeweller come back and said, well, this is rusted solid. I thought, well, why would a woman of sound mind be wearing a watch that's rusted solid for some considerable months and be wearing this watch? The intrigue then grew. Why is this woman wearing that? There was only one person who needed police to have this time of death, and that was Philip. And as time went on, uh, clearly it was to try and alibi Philip. He wasn't going to put a good working watch on it that's valuable to him, so he put a disused watch that wasn't working. Uh, and uh, they broke it to make it appear, well, these dumb detectives will accept that as a time of death, and away we go. Because he would claim he was in his office at the time and couldn't possibly be involved. The gold watch told a story, but not the one the killer was trying to tell. If you're enjoying this podcast, please remember to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And remember to rate and comment on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Unless, of course, you don't like it, then shut up. Brent confesses because he wants to deal with his guilty conscience. But there's something else. He wanted his father to face the music. Um, I'd rather clear the slate. I also wanted to bring my father into this because he's the person that coerced me into doing it. And um, I want him brought to justice as well. I had a hard upbringing and I wasn't near my dad. And when I did see him, it was only sometimes. But I always, he was my dad. And so yep. he had a lot of control over me. I believed everything he said. He, he saw my life and, you know, I had a few little kids in a car cleaning business, so I was broken. He said, oh, I'll help you out soon. I'll get, I'll get some money from my mother when she passed away soon. Philip was manipulative and lazy. He had big plans but always failed and expected Phyllis to bail him out. He was always leaning on his mother for money and his sense of entitlement was breathtaking. He left her in tears when he told her that if his children didn't get private education, it was her fault. When she was sick, he made her pay for car repairs, otherwise he wouldn't visit her. He wanted her money and was the only beneficiary in the will. He would have got the lot, but he wasn't prepared to wait. And then he asked me to scare her into moving by breaking into her house. So she'd go into an old person's home so he could get hold of the money earlier, which I broke into the house and stole stuff. And he said, scare her, who did you remain? My grandmother. But, and he said, you know, just break into her house and mess it all up and she'll have such a fright she'll want to move out and go into her home. And that was for the purposes of? Well, he said he would then have access to her money quite easily. Cause, um, and that frightened her out of that unit mm. into the house where, where I think she still had to pay wages. But by then, 
Philip was getting greedy. He was saying, I'll put it down a mine shaft. He didn't want the, the drip feed. They looked at accommodation. That's right. And realised how expensive it he, was. Exactly. That was my dollars. That was my money that I'm entitled to. I'm not going to spend that. So he opened up his home. He said, you know what? Look at how good a guy I am. I've converted our lounge room. They in there made it a bedroom. Or how good am I? But clearly he wasn't a loving son nor a loving grandson. Well, that record of interview with, uh, with Brent, he's so articulate. Yeah. And detailed. It sounds 100% right. He talks of, basically, I think he said Philip drove him there. He, he told me to go down there at a certain time and that she would be there soon afterwards, being brought back from somewhere. And, and he said, you have to be there at this time. You break in the back window, just use a screwdriver, pop it open, which I did. And I went in the back window because no one else would be there and because she wouldn't be home and I could hide in the house first. Right, okay. So he's told you that. And what else has he told you in relation to going there and doing whatever you had to do? I should get a steel bar and just whack her over the head. Was he after money himself? Oh, yeah. He's like he wanted hundreds of thousands of dollars for all this. Any particular purpose for that stage that he needed money for or...? Particular purpose? No, just because he always... He's constantly got amazing, every scheme he comes up with is the best one in the world. Yeah. So it was just to have the money for his entrepreneurial pursuits. Um, he needs money all the time, that's it. I don't know how he does it, he's a con man and um, he, he's addicted to making money and addicted to not caring whether it's legitimate or whatever, doesn't care. He has no morals and so I was brought up with that. Mm-hmm. And thinking that's how you did things. You would have um, interviewed Philip Hocking. What were your, your initial thoughts about him? Very, very strange. Philip Hocking uh, was a person that uh, delusions of grandeur. He, uh, I don't know if he actually did a book, but he did a certain amount of papers of him being a double agent, working behind enemy lines, and you're saying, well, something's not quite right with this particular person. He saw himself as the star of his own story and seemed to enjoy playing the role of the grieving son. The son of 79-year-old Phyllis Hocking, the Box Hill grandmother who was bashed to death, has made a plea for help to catch a killer. As Ian Neal reports, Philip Hocking says someone must know the person responsible and should contact police before he strikes again. Someone's come home with bloodstained clothes, in a state of stress, whatever. It, uh, and, you know, they don't know their whereabouts at that time. I just think they better get on the phone pretty quickly. Philip Hocking found the body of his mother in the lounge room of his Dunlow Avenue home when he returned with his four children late Tuesday afternoon. He says the killer who inflicted severe head injuries has to be caught. He's probably likely to do it again if confronted by the similar situation and he needs uh, help very quickly. It was the third break-in at the Hocking home in two years but money in his mother's handbag was not touched and it appears nothing else was taken. Philip describes his mother as a kind and very generous person. If he walked up to my mother when he came in the door and said, look, I need a quick fix. Can you give me 200 bucks? If she had $500 in her purse, you'd have given it to him. He always thought he was the smartest person in the room, but too late, when he was interviewed by Tara Brown for a current affair, he discovered he wasn't. Charlie had confided in Tara his concerns that Philip Hocking was hiding something. We'd done a number of stories with the Tara and the like, so we'd spoken to Tara and, and she was sceptical also, so she was hunting a story. She conducted a forensic interview with Philip, beginning by walking him through the crime scene. 
Okay, let's let's start now, Philip. What made you think you'd been burgled? What was it? Oh, uh, well, it scratches on the door. You can see there's a mark on the door. Oh, you can hardly Where? see just above the handle. You notice there's bits out of the door. It's the sort of thing I tend to notice. Mm -hmm. okay. okay, so then you walked in. Mm -hmm. Let's continue on. What happened then? And then walked in and uh, walked straight around here, noticed the stereo equipment missing and the video recorder missing. So it was fairly obvious that somebody had been in who shouldn't be. Uh, and by this stage, the children were right behind me. So I sent them up to their room to watch TV. And then I went uh, around. here and saw that our bedroom was a total mess. There were things all over the floor, uh, drawers and clothing and so on all over the drawer. And then I looked into my mother's room and uh, saw her lying on the floor against the, um, against the bookshelf there. What did you see? Well, I saw her lying on her side and uh, a pool of blood under her head. Do you remember what you did? Well, I went uh, to see if she was uh, still conscious and uh, I knelt down beside her and put one hand on her hip and she just felt dead. And in the end, I'll triple O. And, uh, Philip keeps talking and Tara keeps listening. Her question's becoming more pointed, creating doubt about the burglary gone wrong theory. ..doing horrible things. You know, I feel sure that the person who did this didn't come here to murder my mother. They came here to rob the place. How much did that person get away with? What's been taken from we your home? We don't know. We don't know yet. There may be an amount of cash. There may be nothing. But did it surprise you that your mother had almost $500, according to reports, in her purse that wasn't stolen? From that, you can only assume that the person who did it panicked further and, I mean, obviously left everything behind. It's not much to die for, is it? Look, the whole thing is just so ridiculously stupid that you can't believe it, you know. If the guy had asked her for money, whether she knew him or not, if he'd been that desperate, she'd have given it to him, for Christ's sake. I mean... <sighs> brick by brick, she deconstructs his defence. By now he knows she doesn't believe him. Now, I don't want you to get upset at this question, but people who saw you on TV last night have said to me that you're a very unemotional man mm. when it comes to the death of your mother. Mm. Why is that? I think that that's um, the sort of people... Those sort of comments annoy me. I would suggest that before making stupid comments like that, they talk to my family and those around me, and then perhaps make another judgment. It's an unfair judgment. What do you think? I'm asking you. I'm a very emotional person, but I went on television yesterday because the detective asked me to, and I said, why do you want me to do this? He said, I want you to do it to say to anyone who knows the person, or thinks they do, to, for goodness sake, do something about it. That's why I did it. Now, there would be no point in me going on there 
and bursting into tears, which I nearly did. I mean, if you want me on this camera to burst into tears and tell you what I really think, sure, but what's it going to achieve? A bit of titillation for someone? Okay. So how, how has the death of your mother affected you? Me? What's, I mean, words like totally devastated. What do you, you know? Can you imagine what it's like? You just want me to burst into tears here. No, I don't it's want to burst. Work I don't want I've you to a, burst into tears. I want a, you to tell me. I've had a couple of Valium, so I won't probably, but I might. And what about the cynics in this society who saw you and made the judgment and thought that you were very unemotional about your mother's death, who might think that even maybe you did it? Well, what can I do about that? What would you like me to say? I, I just feel sorry for those sort of people because they're never going to come to any real truth about anything. But the idea that perhaps you have killed your own mother, doesn't that outrage you? If somebody wants to turn around and say, what a cold-hearted bastard, he probably did it himself, well, quite frankly, I really feel sorry for them because they will never reach any understanding about themselves or about anyone else. It doesn't make you angry that... People may think, what sort of a son is that? Of course it makes me angry, but what do you want me to do about it? Break the glass on the table? But is it a ludicrous contemplation that you killed your own mother? Well, it's actually, as it happens, time-wise, it's impossible (laughs) because I was with two other people at the time. Um... Finally, he goes to the good guy defence. He works for charity. He's not interested in money. (laughs) See, I mix in circles... That, you know, I had a 10-piece Christian band for a number of years and we I set it up, I did all the work, I bought all the equipment for it, I organised it and we get, went around playing for old people's villages, church services and so on. I'm not particularly religious, but at my wife's church, I bought their computer for them, I do all their computer work, I do all that sort of thing. I ran a Sunday afternoon mass and arranged a band for two years. For that, if you talk to people, the sort of people I mix with, we are all generous people. We try to think generously about other people. We try to go about our life doing things. My little motto I have in the back of my mind is that everyone I meet whose life I touch, I hope that it makes it a bit better for them. In fact, I don't know anybody who would think that a son would kill his mother. So I don't know how to answer your question. I don't know these people. A drowning man clutching for straws, and so Tara gives him an anchor. Why doesn't it shock you to hear that that you might be the suspect of your mother's murder? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Our family stands to gain financially. We're a family who, look at our house, look around us, what sort of things have we got? We're not a person who is interested in material things, in finance, in money, you know? Now, that sum of money involved, people, and I say stupid people, who don't, ignorant people, who jump to conclusions, ah, money, you know? They, to them, money is everything, okay? So therefore, they would do anything for money. I would do nothing for money, quite frankly. My mother's been financing certain aspects of my business. She was going to pay for the the printing of the book that I'm bringing out. If there's money involved, 
obviously the first suspect is the person who gains to who stands to gain the most. And that's, and that's you. Well, that's our family. I would expect to be the prime suspect. Did you kill mm. your mother? No, of course I didn't. What do you think happened? Um, if she had to die that way, I hope that it was somebody came up behind her and all she felt was a blow and that was the end of it. Thank you. We'll leave it there. Good. Thanks, guys. Even when the interview is over, Philip tries to convince Tara he's innocent and still tries to play the victim. I don't want some sensationalised thing out there. And for my family's sake, we won't need any more of this. Mm. I couldn't have done it. I couldn't have physically been here. Mm. Um, Beyond that... Well, when I listen to that tape... uh, it's pretty clear to me mm. uh, he's hiding a, a truckload of stuff. That is. It's good for the jury, but again, is it enough to charge him? No, it's not. And interestingly enough, with court cases and how the cases go, we could not get enough evidence to substantiate Philip Hocking being involved. Gut feeling? Absolutely, 100% he was involved. There's no DNA evidence. There's no fingerprint evidence. If there was, he lives in that house, so you're going to get it. But there's no link to him to the actual crime or any blood splatter on his clothing. So Brent, obviously, in the end, he he, uh, he pleaded guilty. Pleaded guilty, um, but was adamant that he did it all to behest of his father and assistance of his father. But we couldn't actually progress that because you've got to, got to corroborate the evidence of a co-accused to his best degree, and we just couldn't get off first base. Interestingly, um, at the trial when uh, Justice Frank Vincent sentenced him to 15 years, Mm. he absolutely went out of his way to say he believed Brent. He said, I accept there's a high probability that this was the case. Um, I accept that your actions on this occasion were also carried out at your father's request and partly to assist him in his endeavours to secure access to your grandmother's assets. Yep. In other words, you did it because your dad told you to do Absolutely, it. Absolutely, but we did not, and that's the rules of evidence. We don't have the evidence there to be able to charge Philip. Hello, Brent speaking. Hello, Brent. John Sylvester. Hi, John. How are you? Good, good. Okay, Brent, how long did you end up serving? So I served 15 years and two months uh, of a 19 and a half year sentence. The rest was on parole. And it seems to me that you would have got away with it if you hadn't actually uh, come into the police and, and confessed. What brought that upon you? Well, Charlie Vizina has confirmed to my family that they couldn't even interview me over it. Um, so that's true. But I was really on a spiritual journey. I, I developed a relationship with Christ. And really on any spiritual path, it doesn't matter the denomination, they're all about really peeling away the layers and truth. So I, I hit a brick wall spiritually in my growth. Um, and the only real option to become free was to hand myself into prison. Fair enough. Tell me, how did your father have this hold over you that he could actually get you to do something as horrendous as, as what happened? Uh, he, he's probably a sociopath, I guess is the best phrase, and he, he progressively over six months became more and more violent and angry, and that's uh, when so he started bashing me. And Now, you have come to a different conclusion. Um, the general view, of course, is that you, your father set you up, you went in, and and you beat Phyllis to death. At the time of the murder, I went in and I carried out very heinous actions. I struck Phyllis with an iron bar. Um, 
and she fell to the ground. Um, she would have been wounded, um, injured badly. Uh, I was instructed for many, many months that three blows would kill Phyllis instantly. She wasn't dead. She was on the ground. I did strike her one more time. And about that same moment, there were about 20 school children went past probably a few metres from the window and I could see them out through the lace curtains. I doubt they could see me, but the, the reaction, I was stoned out of my brain from marijuana. I, it's like I snapped back into some reality or of the heinousness and the, well, the stark reality of what I was doing. And I just fled. About three days later, my father came to me, and I'm going to just quote the words he said. Um, uh, he said, I can't believe that you've done it. The evil bitch is dead. I'll get my money now. Uh, good on your son. Um, uh, and, and at that moment, even though there'd been doubts in my mind for a few days, I just went, oh, I did it. That's it. I did it. So uh, if you'd asked me for the next uh, five years and the first year of prison, I would have told you 100%, yep, I carried out this crime. I, I'm responsible. But that changed. That changed after I'd been in prison for 10 months. Was it because you saw the crime scene photos? Was it, was it, was it the scene that you left? First of all, my barrister started asking some questions. Like he, he uh, asked, did I do the burglary? Did I do the firebombing? Yes, yes. Did I do the murder? Yes. And he said, but did you, and he started showing me photos of mundane things, like did you stack this stereo equipment at the back door of the house? And I said, no. And I looked, I seemed a bit weird. And then he showed me all rooms messed up through the house. And uh, said, did you do these? And I said, no. Uh, but then he sort of harped on at me about a watch. Did you place a watch on it? And I said, well, yeah, I could ask that in the interview. And I, no, like, no. Like, why would I? Like, and um, so that was all mundane. But then, yeah, he pulled out the photos of the crime scene. And the crime scene is horrific. Um, I'm not saying what I did didn't make blood and wasn't a horrible crime scene, but this was blood all over the walls and ceiling. And it was an extraordinary large amount of blows and a frenzied attack. Um, well, the second I saw those, that photo, I knew I didn't do that. But maybe subconsciously for five years, I had met, remembered that she was alive when I left. And the hypothesis of the second attack is difficult to put up. There is forensic evidence that shows my father's the only one who can be really placed there. He said he brought the mail into the police and the media. That mail is covered in blood splatter that originates from the head of the deceased. God bless her. Um, there are things that show my father most likely did it. And then there's the watch. The watch, Charlie Bazzini could take you through that. The watch, he was given that six weeks prior to get it repaired and so it didn't work and that was found on Phyllis. Uh, forensics shows that it rusted whilst in a stationary position, not whilst being worn, so you couldn't have worn it for, say, a sentimental reason, worn a broken watch. Um, and it stopped at five past two um, when my father had three people with him for 20 minutes. My father, however, did not have anyone with him from, I think, 25 past two until about three or something. It's a 25-minute window anyway. He had 25 minutes and it was 700 metres up the road in his office. What you're actually saying is that, yes, you attacked your grandmother, you, you struck her. Yes, 100%. So in your view, who actually struck the fatal blows? I'm 100%, 100% sure my father the truth of the matter is, I think that we can both agree that your father got away with murder. Oh, yeah, he got away with murder. In jailing him for 15 years, Justice Frank Vincent made it clear he believed Brent had acted on Philip's orders. Justice Vincent said, I think it is likely, as you claim, that you were driven by your father to his home and some joint activity then undertaken to create the impression the burglars had been disturbed. The bulk of the estate, more than $335,000, went to Philip. Philip broadened his horizons. He bought a luxury yacht and took up sailing. He 
He settled in New Zealand with another partner and in December 2018 died of natural causes, having never faced a court of law. Brent has done his time and written a book to help inmates survive prison. Charlie has retired from policing. Naked City is brought to you by The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Subscriptions power our newsroom. So to support independent journalism, consider subscribing to the Sydney Morning Herald or The Age. This episode is produced and edited by Anu the Axe Hasbolt, Margaret Machine Gun Gordon, and mixed and mastered by Jellic Knight John Greenfield, with technical assistance from Cool Hand Cormac Lally. Tom McKendrick is head of audio. Archival is thanks to Nine, 3OW, and A Current Affair. I'm John Sylvester. Thanks for listening. Next episode is Inside the Hells Angels. There's a man coming from America to kill you, Mr Armstrong, and he's from the Hells Angels in America.